This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. I want somebody who unequivocally champions public education and public educators, and then kind of gets a little bit um, righteous about the needs for the resources to close gaps. Did you know Channel 253 is member-supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast, brought to you by Pacific Lutheran University and Libro FM. My name is Nate, and I'm your host, an American teacher abroad. It is a Saturday afternoon here in Abu Dhabi. Uh, my wife, Hope, and I just got back from a weekend in Ras al-Khaimah. Ras al-Khaimah is basically like, so UAE, one way to think about it is, is the entire country is the size of South Carolina and has a population of Georgia, and it's shaped like a triangle. So Ras al-Khaimah is basically like the city and the emirate at the northernmost tip of the country. Uh, it's about 250 kilometers away, and we made a road trip this weekend, uh, spent some quality time, pictures on Instagram and Twitter if you want to follow those. Uh, and we hung out, and on the way back, uh, we had a lot of time in the car to kind of talk through things. And one of the things that I was thinking about while we were driving back is some of the studies we're doing in my class. Uh, here in UAE, I teach three classes. I have a AP government politics class, your standard like U.S. government class, like uh, it's intro to Congress, intro to government at a, at a freshman level of college. Then I have a comparative politics class, which is looking at the government systems in the United Kingdom, Iran, Mexico, Nigeria, China, and Russia. Uh, that's a 200-level class that I teach basically to high school students about comparative politics, looking at parliamentary systems versus presidential systems, democracies versus authoritarian states, yada, yada, yada. But the third class that I teach is the most interesting. It's global studies. And global studies is a ninth grade class uh, for kids who are at my school. It was designed within the school. And in that class right now, we're doing a model United Nations simulation. And our model United Nations focus conversation is about the World Health Organization and infectious disease. So the reason why I bring that up is, is that one of the things I ask students to do is I ask them to look up the deaths per million from COVID for their assigned countries. And there were some really interesting surprises that happened in that conversation. A lot of folks have rightly, rightfully dunked on the United States for their COVID response. And damn right, there has been 250,000 plus Americans have passed away from a virus. I'm going to argue that most of those deaths, including the passing away of my father, were preventable. At the same time, when you look on a per capita basis, the situation in the United States is not as bad as it is in some places. And so when I had my students look up deaths per million, uh, I was kind of surprised by the numbers, actually. Uh, in the United States, we're looking basically at about 766 deaths per million, but that number is escalating. But that number is almost half the number in Belgium, where they're at 1,300 deaths per million. Uh, Belgium does not get a lot of smoke because Belgium is a really small country, frankly. Uh, that's also a lower number than United K, sorry, United Kingdom, United K, the UK, United Kingdom, which is at 803 deaths per million. And then I got down and we actually looked at the deaths per million number here in UAE and it's 55. 55. So the number in the United States is in the 700s. The number in Belgium is 1,300. The number here in UAE is 55. 
And what that was really indicative of to me is the effectiveness and importance of government competence and that like government policy and compliance with basic public health recommendations can literally save lives by the thousands. Dear listener, I want you to imagine an alternative past. And in this alternative past, sometime in March, a competent, uh, non-demagogic president of the United States got on television and leveled with the country and said, we're facing a crisis, a generational crisis. And that non-demagogic president like utilize the power of the bully pulpit, the most powerful microphone in the world, the presidency of the United States, to say to Americans, listen, we are facing a crisis and it's going to take all of us to fix it. We all need to wear masks when outdoors. We all need to socially distance and we need to reduce the amount of uh, capacity, reduce capacity inside businesses that are non-essential. And frankly, if you don't need to work, you need to stay home. And to help us do that, I'm going to be sending stimulus money to you, the citizens, as I ask you to stay home and sacrifice. And moreover, if that competent president would have turned then and used not the power of the government, but the power of moral authority that comes with the presidency and said to the NBA, said to college football, said to Major League Baseball, said to the NHL, said to Major League Soccer, said to the movie industry, we're going to ask you on behalf of the country to shut down. And we're not going to be able to restart you until we have the virus under control. Think about how different the situation in the United States would have been if somebody would have taken the helm of moral leadership and had that conversation. Think about how different the situation would be with the number of deaths. Think about hospitalizations. Think about this wave that we're going to see about two weeks after Thanksgiving. By the way, we're having this conversation uh, on Saturday, November 21st. Uh, I'm looking at photos right now from airports around the United States where people are ignoring guidance being given and flocking to airports to travel home. Think about how the situation in America could be different if we had clear moral leadership, clear, clear competent leadership, and a non-demagogue at the helm. I say this because one of the places that would most be impacted by this is schools. And that brings me to today's conversation. Today's interview, today's episode is a conversation between myself and the Washington State Superintendent of Public Instruction, Chris Reichdahl, and his assistant, his deputy, Dr. Michaela Miller. And we're going to talk through today what's happening in Washington State schools. Obviously, COVID is like the elephant in the room, but we're also going to talk about what the last four years have been like for them dealing with the Department of Education under Betsy DeVos, another demagogic incompetent figure. And so that's the episode today. I, I almost wish that like I could record two versions of, of this episode, like one version where we have the straight conversation and like one version where they just talk all the <laughs> they want to. But like. They're adults. They're good people. They're elected officials. Well, he's an elected official. She's a bureaucrat. And like, that's not how it's going to go. But I hope this is a fruitful conversation for you as a listener. And then when we come back after the break, I'm going to talk about our Nerd Farmers Book Club. But for now, let's get to the show. I want to welcome you both to the show. Thank you for joining us. Um, I want to ground this conversation in what you are in charge of and is possible and not airy-fairy stuff. And I know the work of OSPI is... Uh, is held in concert with other folks in Washington State Education. So I'm just wondering, could the two of you kind of walk me through what exactly is OSPI in charge of and not in charge of? Like, what's your purview? Sure, <clears throat> I can do that. And then Chris can chime in too as well. Um, so the governance structure in Washington State is, is really dispersed. Um, we have uh, the constitution um, really sets the basic ed framework, um, one of the strongest in the country. Um, by the way, 
but the uh, State Board of Education, the Professional Educator Standards Board, um, all have uh, separate authority uh, from OSPI regarding um, students. I kind of think of State Board as being mostly around students, and I think of Professional Educator Standards Board as mostly around educators. And then we really are um, the state education agency. Uh, so they, our role is really um, very broad uh, in terms of our scope. Um, and actually, I think since COVID, one of the things that we've been finding is, you know, the decades and decades of authority that we have at OSPI um, around K-12 education, because it's forced us to uncover all of those things. Um, uh, so Chris, do you want to chime in on other governance? Learning standards, uh, money, and data, and ultimately accountability by exposing poor performance, not particularly because we have a big stick uh, there, but we expose it. Uh, the only other part I'd share is in Washington state, there is an unprecedented level of control by local school boards. So anything we do to set the tone, the policy framework, set standards, give them money, collect their data, put it up in front of them, at the end of the day, uh, they are the ones who ultimately make change and make decisions about transformation. So if you're a champion of public ed in the state of Washington, you keep your eye out on us and you really, really follow your local school board. I feel like over the last four years, I have seen you both struggle in your engagement with the Federal Department of Education. And I just wonder, what have the last four years been like working with Secretary DeVos and the Secretary of Education and the DOE, has, how it's been constructed uh, under her leadership? And Nate always asks those questions that you just kind of want to turn the camera off and run away. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So here's what's really clear. Uh, you probably know this about me. I've never thought the United States federal government should play a significant role in the day-to-day -day operations of schools, whether that's, in my opinion, the poor expectations that Arne Duncan had under a Democrat or under the you know, current regime of Betsy DeVos. Uh, that said, they have a really important role, though, to protect civil rights, uh, whether that's about race, whether that's about students with disabilities, um, students who are learning English uh, as a second language to them. There are student populations that are so essential to the effectiveness of, of America, to the, to the justice that we have to serve. And really, that's where they have some scope. Most of the federal resources we get are about them holding each of the states equally accountable around uh, race and equity. That is not what the last several secretaries have done. And this one on steroids decided to make it uh, this sort of activist role about an educational ideology of privatization. So from the moment Michaela and I got there in our team, uh, we, we didn't make this super public in a lot of ways, but we were battling them on you know, trying to force traditionally public dollars to privatization schemes, whether it was their money or ours in the state. We were writing letters to remind them that we serve every student by our state constitution who resides with us, not who are citizens, but who reside with us. So we were trying to protect immigrant students, our dreamers. Uh, we were writing letters to say our LGBTQ plus youth are a priority student group for us that we're going to focus on. Uh, by the end, it just got 
a little bit crazy and nutty. As of yesterday, <laughs> she was sending out a press release <clears throat> essentially describing how every state is whining that they need more money, but she's given us you know, billions in federal relief that we haven't used. And it's just fundamentally untrue. We have two years to spend COVID relief money. And if you could imagine, we're in this for at least another year. We need to buy PPE. We need to buy additional technology for students. We've got to backfill lost revenue. Uh, we have two years to spend the money. She took a snapshot right now and said, look, they haven't spent all the money, which is just so disingenuous. And uh, so personally, uh, I got to meet her a couple of times uh, or be in rooms with her. I, I do think she cares. I think her version of caring uh, immediately tilts to an economic ideology of private marketplace. And I would simply suggest that that has failed a lot of populations for a long time when every dollar is driven to the few at the expense of the many. And she wanted to double down on that. Michaela, you were nodding with your entire body. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I so Nate, you know that I've been I, I've been, I was at OSPI prior to uh, prior to this administration. So I worked with prior departments of education. So I have a little bit of a perspective, and then just being a student of the history of education, have a perspective of like the origins of ESEA and where that started and. Um, I, I would, I hundred percent agree with Chris that, that a lot of it was distracting, um, to our work. Uh, it was not productive. Um, I would say the same thing about some of the policies that though came out of the prior administration. Um, uh, they were just, uh, I think we felt like we had the same, uh, ideological, uh, outcome that we wanted for kids but we had a very different way of approaching um, the needs of students, pri primarily because we're closer to the students. Um, and even at OSPI, we're really far away from the classroom. So, um, so it's appropriately putting uh, the, either the federal government or the SEA in the right position to support, to, to support students, to support educators. Um, they just had such a different approach than, um, and Chris ticked off many of them. So a lot of it was distracting because it forced us to be in a defensive mode of reacting, clarifying, and then sending out the proper information about what our state law does to protect students and their families and their communities. And that is, um, it's just uh, a distraction from the work that we have to do, quite frankly. So you both kind of laid out how the federal government has not been helpful as of late, and also that the federal role shouldn't be that large to begin with. At the same time, you pointed out how, how diffused the power is in Washington state and how OSPI shares power with the PESB board, the state board, districts, and ESDs. And so I guess my question for you all both is, is so Joe Biden is going to nominate a new sector of education. I have my hopes for who it's going to be, not me, by the way. Uh, but what are you looking for from the federal level as a partner for the next four years? Yeah, I'll, I'll start and Michaela can certainly fill in. Um, I want an advocate of public education first and foremost. I want to pick up mm -hmm. digital media and print media and find out that the next secretary of education was in Wisconsin or California or Washington uh, or Virginia or Florida at a public school championing what they're doing as a locally publicly elected school board to engage community, to target their resources, to close gaps, um, and to really develop this concept that public ed is a, is a door opening for many, many pathways. <clears throat> so I want a philosophy 
that defends the system that 90% of US kids are in, <laughs> the public system. Without vilification of the privates, by the way, we have tremendously good private schools in our state. We have a great relationship with them. We make available our professional learning. We share all of our guidance with them. We want a tight relationship. Students are students are students and we care about them. Uh, but there's this powerfully democratic thing started a long time ago called public ed that gives the sons and daughters of, you know, billionaires and the sons and daughters of those on public assistance a chance to sit right next to each other in a classroom and learn with each other and from each other. And that's what I want. I want somebody who unequivocally champions public education and public educators and then kind of gets a little bit um, righteous about the needs for the resources to close gaps. I, I don't want them messing with teacher evaluations. I want them out of the testing business. It's been a colossal failure. I want them going to Congress, partnering with the administration and saying, we need unprecedented resources to support students with disabilities. We have a crisis of race in this country and we have to be vocal about it, intentional about it. It has to be built into every uh, school's uh, plan for, for achievement. And so be that institution that they thought they created around equity. Don't be the system from Washington DC that tries to get into how we do the details of the work and God, let's get rid of the idea uh, that somehow we need to turn this into the U.S. equity markets where we just, you know, hand out cash with deficit spending and then let families choose the investment that works best for them. Public ed is an individual benefit, but first and foremost, it is a public good. And we sure as hell shouldn't privatize public goods or we will get in education what we are getting um, in income inequality in the country. Here, here. Michaela? Yeah, I've been uh, obviously thinking about this a lot. I am um, heartened by uh, Linda Darling-Hammond being the transition lead for the group. I know several people that are on that transition team. So I have a lot of hope. I'm also kind of thinking back to the the former Democratic uh, administration and just, you know, wondering like, okay, what's going to happen here? Um, I think actually... Uh, and Chris and I have talked a lot about this, uh, you know, a lot of things will hinge uh, on the Georgia uh, races um, as they start to pick their cabinet. Um, and it looks like some picks will be next week. So um, we'll see how that that trickles out. But when you go to work for an elected, a separately elected official, it um, it you should be representing the values and beliefs of that administration whoever is picked for this secretary of education should be that um, uh, should demonstrate the values and beliefs that uh, the Biden administration holds. So I have great hope um, talked with sub, uh, one of the key transition um, folks uh, in the last few weeks. And um, I, I think they're going to go in the right direction. So I, I really have a lot of hope that that will set the tone because the thing that's been missing in the last four years is you have a bully pulpit at the federal level to help support and lift up teachers, ed all educators, all staff, uh, students. And that's been incredibly, um, an incredible hole, <laughs> quite frankly, in, in the work because you, you have that ability to help amplify the needs. And it's just, um, it's been divisive and chaotic. So, Michaela, Chris kind of gave his profile for, like, what he would like to see. Um, you are the professional, like, educator in the conversation. Like, 
I got to know was Dr. Miller, for example. And so I'm wondering, uh, are there any names of particular people, Peggy Brookings, uh, who come to mind for you, who you're thinking about for this position, Johanna Hayes? Uh, are there any figures uh, of, on the national scene who you think we should be looking out for, or if they were nominated, would excite you? Well, I think either of the two you named um, would be great in the role. Uh, uh, I think there are a lot. I mean, there are a lot of swir uh, swirling around. Um, both Randy and Lily, uh, AFT and NEA, have both been mentioned as some uh, two of the top contenders. Um, I actually, you know, I think it is important to get that position right. Um, I think it's equally important to get their senior staff right. So because they are the ones that are going to be carrying out that work and working with states on a much more uh, hands-on uh, way and doing a lot of the work to undo the crazy policies that have been put in place over the last four years. So that's going to take some work in not that much work because quite frankly, they haven't done a lot except for rescinding letters and, and sending out ridiculous statements. So it won't take a lot, but you have to, there's a ton of work, um, career staff that have left in the last four years, that department of education has to be built up. Um, confidence has to be built in the Department of Education. There's a there's a ton of just internal kind of boring bureaucratic work that has to be done, and um, and it's going to take that kind of senior leadership, whoever goes into the the uh, in place to support that leader, um, really is is equally as important as the person that they pick for the top job. So can I pile on one more thing here? Uh, Please do. Nate, you asked us a really appropriate question around the scope of OSPI vis-a-vis -vis some, some perception people have, right? We're not the early learning uh, agency, but we are going to be much more uh, focused on that. We're not the higher education agency in the state, but we transition our students there and, and, and want more voice in the opportunities. When we think about a U.S. Secretary of Education, they do have that scope. They do have a more comprehensive scope. And you saw Secretary DeVos spend her time again, with this privatization logic, taking no opportunity to lift up low-income students who need financial opportunities in higher education. So whoever gets this next job as well, I would add two other qualities, the ability to think comprehensively about the role and opportunity in higher ed and needs legislative skills. Uh, this is all relationship-based. Um, the Biden-Harris team will come with a very friendly house, at least for two years, maybe not a very friendly Senate, but possibly. So you're going to have to have the ability to build relationships and get things done. And here's the last thing I'll say about that. Don't just have a financial aid conversation as the U.S. Secretary of Education about higher ed. That is important. Um, but as we see, sticker price is real. If your model is let states continue to jack up the price of access, but then let's work really hard to get students, you know, grants and loans, it still doesn't work for a lot of communities. The sticker price itself keeps them from uh, attempting to access it. So I love a secretary who has a vision for higher ed too, that is a lower price point, that is about access uh, broadly, not about filtering kids out. And somebody who takes them on a little bit about saying there are multiple ways to demonstrate success post-secondary, and it isn't just a university approach or even a community or technical college approach. So taking a little risk in apprenticeships, uh, work-based learning, there are so many things we need to provide students in. I, I've just seen traditionalists in there for so long who think their job is to just continue to let the states 
raise the price of access and then work really, really hard with Congress to get financial aid. Uh, it's not a sustainable winning model. Yeah, that actually goes to a question I, was, I wanted to pose to you. Uh, in my year of service as teacher of the year, one of the things that really occurred to me or that I wasn't expecting was how much interaction I got to have with the other state chiefs. And so, for example, uh, I got to sit down at a roundtable at Aspen with Tony Evers, who went on to be the governor of Wisconsin. Uh, I worked with Pedro, who was a superintendent in Pennsylvania for years and years and years. Uh, Chris, what is the mood among your fellow chiefs? Like, are because the thing about the, about the state chiefs are they come from a, a range of perspectives. Like many of them are appointed by the governor, so you have very conservative people. Uh, what is the mood among your colleagues about like this moment and the next four years and opportunities ahead? Yeah, great framing, uh, Nate. For your listeners, roughly 40% of chiefs around the country are appointed by governors. Roughly 40% are appointed by state boards of ed. And there are roughly 20% of us who are elected separately in our states. Um, by the way, Pedro is a name I would have put way up there because he yeah. really does have a vision for K-12 and higher ed. He's on the transition team, which is great. Uh, sometimes those folks on those teams emerge as the candidates, so we'll see what happens. But I, I do. I was kind of thinking highly of him as an opportunity there. Um, I think they're relieved that we're going to get back to support um, instead of constantly having to remind the secretary to not be in the details here. I think they're relieved to support public ed. Um, I, I go back to this Title IX fight. Secretary DeVos quite literally rewrote the rules so that victims of sexual assault on a K-12 or higher ed campus would have to go under cross-examination for the person who violated them. Like this was their logic in trying to reduce the number of sexual assaults on campus and to take rights away from victims. So when I think about that kind of stuff, there are 50 chiefs really excited that we're gonna get back to justice and that we're going to focus on public ed and, and protecting folks. Now, I will say there is always a split amongst those ideologically around this privatization question. You do have chiefs out there with big charter systems, many of them quite good and public, many of them very private and run by for-profit companies. And you have voucher states that have been growing, particularly through the South. And again, I don't think they're interested in uh, the feds being in their business too much, but they sure liked her advocacy for that privatization scheme, uh, which quite frankly has got four or five of those states in the bottom, uh, literally the bottom 10 of performance because vouchers uh, are a resegregation tools. So I suspect some of them didn't mind uh, her ideology, but for the most part, I think the chiefs are just looking forward to a partner who looks out for them and doesn't try to get into the micromanagement of states. That makes sense. All right, so we'll take a break here. And when we come back, we're going to focus on issues here in Washington State and in particular talk about the elephant in the room, which is COVID-19. So we'll be back. Hi, I'm Eric Hanberg, host of the Channel 253 podcast, We Art Tacoma. And I've been a member of TAPCO Credit Union since I was a kid, really. My parents set up a savings account for me, and I've had that account with them ever since. In fact, my first credit card wasn't from a big bank, it was from TAPCO, and I still have that too. What I appreciate about TAPCO is they are intensely local. Just like Channel 253, TAPCO keeps its focus on Tacoma and Pierce County. They have easy to reach branches and ATMs in the Tacoma area, and when I don't want to drive, I just use their online or mobile banking. To this day, TAPCO helps parents teach kids good savings habits. 
The Moolah Kids Club teaches kids about savings, not only through interest on their money, but with special prizes and discounts at local attractions. So if you want to help your kids start a savings account the same way my parents did, check out our local credit union at tapcocu.org. My thanks to TAPCO for their support of this podcast and Channel 253. And we are back. I want to thank you for downloading the show and giving us a listen today. The Nerd Farmer Podcast is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. We're a network of local podcasts based out of Tacoma and Abu Dhabi, uh, telling you stories, giving perspective, points of view, interviews with experts and folks who you won't get elsewhere. Uh, this conversation to me is, is really important because one, I am an educator. I spent 13 years teaching in Washington State. I hope to return to Washington State one day soon. And frankly, like from the beginning of this network and the show, we talk about thinking and acting locally and not worrying about national politics like Trump going Trump and Biden going Biden, but local elections and local figures matter more. And so if you want to hear more conversations like this, where we talk to local experts, journalists, and politicians, please think about joining Channel 253 as a membership. They cost $4 a month or $40 a year. Uh, that is very, very cheap. I almost did the price conversion at the Deerham, the local currency. I won't do that right now. In addition, I would like to invite you to join our next Nerd Farm Reads book club. And in fact, on this book club, we're partnering with the ladies from IWL. And so both podcasts are reading the same book, cast by Isabel Wilkerson. You can grab a copy of the book at your local library. You can grab a copy at King's Books, your local bookstore, or you can download it from Libro FM. If you join Libro FM, who is a partner of Channel 253, in your first month of membership, you'll get two books for the price of one for $15. And so read cast with us, tweet about it using hashtag NeurofarmReads or hashtag ReadLessBasic, the IWL uh, hashtag, and then join us for a conversation down the road about cast. Uh, I'm about three chapters in, and I think it's absolutely phenomenal. And frankly, it's a palate cleanser at how well it's written after reading The Anatomy of Fascism, which was a textbook. All right, Chris, Michaela, back to you guys. Uh, so, Chris, you have just been reelected to your second term as the state superintendent of public education. Uh, you have been essentially handed like a mandate from the people to, to go ye there for and like work on transformation and improving Washington state schools. And at the same time, you've been reelected into what I think I'm gonna call a shitstorm with COVID. And so I wonder what is on the front burner for you policy wise about the next four years for students and teachers in Washington state. Yeah, you come into these roles and you definitely think long-term vision, right? You've got to set a tone about where we're going and then you design backwards. Um, but, but COVID is a game changer and it's obviously so disruptive in everyone's lives that you can't ignore that that has to be the first priority. Health and safety first and foremost, cases are exploding. This is a country that, that, that in many ways lacked the discipline to balance economic interests um, and public health. Uh, we did it okay for a while. There's actually a psychological cycle to this that we've been studying. Uh, there's this rallying phase and this heroic phase in the beginning where we're all in it together. And then people just want their hamburger and they want to sit in a restaurant. And that sort of behavior starts to get normed and suddenly we're, we're where we are today. So um, focusing on that, uh, really working further with the governor and public health to make sure that we get numbers down. We have been increasing access to school through all of this. We've been opening more and more school districts and we don't do that. That's them locally deciding that, uh, but making sure they have the tools to do that and the framework to do that. And public health is increasingly demonstrating for them how they can do that safely, particularly for early grades. So getting this thing opened, Obviously, getting a new secretary of ed uh, who's going to help Congress realize that through any stimulus package, public education needs additional support. 
and then doing a huge evaluation at the local level of gaps. Where did this get worse for students uh, or did everyone take a step back and how big is it? If you were a district that really focused on fewer standards and you dove in and you really assessed critical thinking skills, I think you're going to say, hey, we, we did some good work here and there's a little work to do to recover, but we're in pretty good shape. If you're a district who didn't do that and instead your teachers unleashed a flurry of homework, uh, just as they might have done in a face-to-face setting and said, wow, we have a lot of students failing. We must be really far behind. No, you're behind um, on how much homework came back, but you may not even know whether your students are thinking as critically, uh, whether they've got deep understanding of concepts. And so uh, Mikhail and I will continue to run through walls to build the framework of recovery that focuses on closing gaps. But we really do need school districts to think about what does that actually mean? It may not mean that letter grades represent gaps, and it may not mean attendance or turning your camera on or off of Zoom uh, was a gap, but what is the real understanding of students uh, in terms of concepts. So got to do that first and foremost, <clears throat> get these stage three trials done of the vaccine, get them widely distributed and widely um, uh, uptake, and then get students back in this fall. Uh, that's going to be you know, sustainable. And then we have an entire passion about what we want to do long-term, uh, but, but I'll stop there for now. <clears throat> yeah. Michaela, I want to ask you what I'm going to acknowledge the unfair question, because like there's infinity districts, infinity schools, infinity answers. Uh, but just based on your observations, anecdotally, data otherwise, um, how do you think Washington State is doing writ large with this remote learning environment uh, due to the pandemic? I think as well as can be expected, to be honest. Um, I was uh, I was on a Zoom just the other night with three teachers. Um, and these are, you know, these teachers would run through walls uh, for their students. Uh, and um, they are exhausted. <laughs> mm. They are trying to figure out uh, remote learning uh, in the current context. They have political dynamics above them that they don't have control over. Um, and uh, you know what I saw, we, we started uh, when we got the first call on February 22nd, we were one of the, the first state uh, to have an outbreak. So we've been in this longer than any other state. Um, we started with three, kind of uh, values around what we, how we were going to move forward, compassion, communication, and common sense. And um, those were kind of our three guiding lights as we move forward in March, uh, got a work group together immediately with teachers, educators, staff, uh, principals, superintendents, and tried to figure out how are we going to move through this? Um, the thing I have observed, and I will answer your question more directly. Um, the thing I have observed is, quite frankly, the leaders that were good leaders prior to the administration, prior, prior to the um, prior to COVID, did a better job um, in being able to transition to this. They had systems set up. They had they had their leadership set up. They had empowered teacher leaders. That mattered when you transition to COVID. Um, so I, I think that's what I have observed from the, um, you know, hundreds of conversations that I've had with, uh, principals, um, superintendents and staff members across, across the state. They're also, I'll just say one other thing, you know, 
health and safety has not been uh, a primary focus for um, health and safety is taken for granted, I should say. We, sure. we worry about teachers standing on chairs or, you know, I mean, we, we don't think about health and safety in life and death situations in schools. We build our schools. We, we have safety regulations. So the fact that school districts have basically two large bureaucratic regulators um, in the Department of Health, local health, and education um, has been a balancing act that superintendents have had to mitigate. And some have done it really well. Some have, have not. That's actually, you brought that up. I wanted to go there next. Can you explain for folks who may not be as informed as you are or as I am about how exactly decisions are being made about whether or not schools open? Like in the beginning of the show, we talked about making sure we focus on things that are like within your purview and just for folks listening, whether or not Tacoma schools or Yakima schools or, uh, I don't know, insert Ferris high school is open is not up to Chris and Michaela. Who's making the determination about who's open and closed? Yeah, there's a really clear set of statutes here that that make very clear that OSPI, interestingly, has no authority to force a closure, nor can we force an opening. So we are about educational guidance, trying to sustain money and flexibility for districts. Um, we are we have become, and Michaela has just played a remarkable role with countless hours being the bridge between those health regulators who actually do have the authority, the state health office can close schools locally, regionally, statewide. The governor can obviously close schools, um, but only local school boards can decide how and when to open. So today, public health or the governor couldn't say things are good. Now I'm going to open schools. Uh, it's, it's a strange thing, but we could have school districts at any time in the last hundred years say our model is going to be fully remote. We're never going to be in person. Now that would be crazy. We know we've built systems of support, but, but interestingly, that'd be allowed. Uh, local boards get to decide how to deploy. So our job has just been the glue, uh, translating to the governor and his decision-making what the impact is on districts, connecting him with superintendents and students and parents and teachers and principals, as well as public health, and then translating their decisions to the school system. And what we found ourselves doing through a lot of this is looking at their guidance going, okay, that might make sense at a Boeing factory. That might make sense in a restaurant uh, setting that thing you're trying to do, that isn't going to make sense with kindergartners. You can't bring in K's and ones and ask them 14 health screening questions and get anything but hilarity. Have you had a runny nose in the last 14 days? Yeah, as a matter of fact, it's been leaking all morning. Well, now that kid gets sent home for two weeks to quarantine. <laughs> so we had to do some education translation for folks to say, okay, you got to put this in a setting that makes a little bit more sense for us. Uh, but really important for listeners to know, the opening decision is exclusively local boards, uh, but the closing decision, as you saw in the spring, was definitely the governor's, which is why his ultimate answer here was really strict health framework, understand it, but school districts, you get to decide, and we strongly urge you to follow the health guidelines, work with your local public health officials. Most have followed that very tightly. A few have actually taken a little more risk than the health guidelines recommended, which is their authority, and that's why there's some labor tension in a couple of districts around the state right now. That makes sense. Uh, an adjacent question to this conversation I want to pose came in from one of our listeners who actually uh, was my go-to substitute teacher. Thank you, Carrie. Uh, and so she wants to know about subs. Uh, many of us are hanging on by a thread. Can you, you being you, not me, so like you, Chris, uh, work with the state legislature to protect uh, subs, S-E-B-B benefit, benefits, 
because they'll lose them if they don't get enough hours. And the minute the state of emergency lifts, most of them are going to lose their insurance. And she's really terrified about that. So that's really wonky. Can you explain what SEBB is and then what this person's concern is? Yeah, SEB is the School Employee Benefits Program. The legislature really amped up in the last um, couple of years. They've made a lot more people eligible for health benefits, including substitute teachers who historically couldn't accumulate enough hours on a consistent basis to get benefits in the old prior world. And now they take more of an annual look at it. Can they accumulate enough hours in a given year, Um, uh, which is essentially half-time approach in schools. So Mm. uh, very, very powerful way to give more people health care and to make sure they earn it. The challenge, just as this question indicates, is if you're running schools remotely and a teacher's not feeling well that day, uh, gosh, you have a lot of flexibility now to assign work and say, hey, we're not going to meet tomorrow. You don't per se need a substitute teacher in there. And uh, that means there's a lot of subs not getting their hours. There's a lot of classified school employees by way of custodials and bus drivers and others not getting their hours. And so there's a real worry that there's going to be a healthcare disruption for a lot of these employees. Um, what we are already doing is telling the legislature, you need to give us a whole harmless approach. This is an unprecedented once in a hundred year crisis. You don't want to dismantle people's lives here or the employment status of so many people for a one year, you know, one and a half year blip. So we're asking for what we call hold harmless is keep the money flowing this year so we can keep as many employees engaged as we can. And, And in our state, we use so many formulas to decide money in the next year that not having kids on buses this year, uh, slightly lower attendance this year will actually cost districts money in next year's formulas, just as we're now ramping up with unprecedented numbers of of kids coming back. So yeah, we are already on this. We are working with the legislature, great set of allies. Um, Their tough job in the legislature is, you know, they wanna do the right thing. They also wanna balance their budget. (laughs) And they've already observed a way to save a bunch of money out of the K-12 system, uh, which is obviously their biggest cost driver. We're 53% of their general fund. So uh, it's gonna be an interesting balance. Another good reason to have Biden, Harris, and a new Secretary of Ed fighting hard in Congress for a relief package that includes K-12. I would just add that um, many of our subs uh, systems in the state are just ad hoc. So some are part of collective bargaining agreements, some, most are not. Um, we only have a few handful of districts that are part of CBAs. So that affects it. Um, that affects the, the employment um, and districts were really conservative in the spring. And so they were pulling back those commitments to substitutes um, in anticipation of the next year. Now they're feeling the effects of it. And as we continue on with the pandemic, um, if that's a major cause for superintendents thinking about what what will cause them to pretend potentially go from in-person learning to remote, it may not have to do with the health uh, jurisdiction at all. It has to do with the ability to staff their schools. Ooh, I didn't. Oh, that's. A, I'm glad you said that. Actually, sorry, Michaela. So one of the points of ag- advocacy that I was engaged in before I departed was around teacher shortages, and I've been reading a lot of articles about. Mm, early retirements and resignations. What is the teacher for workforce look like in Washington state in the next couple of years? Are we facing a shortage or have we, or do we have enough graduates coming out of that programs? Yeah, I think we, we do. We've been studying that too. Um, I, I sit on the professional educator standards board. So we're taking a close look at that. We've definitely seen a decline in enrollment in teacher prep programs um, over the last four or five years. I mean, this is, this is not a new problem. 
uh, COVID just presents an acute problem for teachers getting through and, for example, being able to submit their ed TPA and um, which is the uh, which is the assessment uh, used to establish a residency residency certification for teachers. There are a lot of um, in the weeds kinds of policy decisions um, that we can attend to and that we the Professional Educator Standards Board is attending to in order to make sure that there aren't uh, um, barriers put up for teacher pr- in terms of moving from teacher prep to in-service. We were recently ranked for what it's worth by WalletHub, who do these interesting analyses, multiple variable analyses on lots of topics, but they, they described Washington State as the number one state to be a teacher in. Uh, doesn't mean it isn't a brutally complex time right now, but they look at things like compensation, access to technology, our prep programs, professional development, our pension systems. So we have a really good infrastructure from which to continue to build a workforce. And I will always suggest to your listeners, there is no way you make this system more effective and close gaps without really uh, talented educators. It is first and foremost. Um, this is a really tough moment, though. And one of the downsides of a really good compensation model that we've helped build over the last four years um, is that there's some people who... Uh, who are approaching retirement, who now have the financial means to do that perhaps a little earlier. So I do worry a little bit that if this were to persist a whole lot longer, um, next fall would be really, really tough, I think. Um, I think there's hope though. There's certainly hope in the vaccines. There's there's hope in a return. Um, and I, I, I believe we are gonna sustain this as well as any state in the country in terms of retaining our workforce. Uh, but, but, but this substitute shortage issue is a real deal as well. I, I want to say one other thing uh, that's one of my passions around this is prior to COVID, uh, we had put forth a um, proposal to look at a full Washington state Washington statewide uh, residency program for educators, what that would look like to build up a residency program statewide. Um, and so that was uh, vetoed um, in at the end of last session. Uh, But uh, prior to COVID, we were on that path to say, what would it take to not just um, ensure that uh, student teaching is longer than a nine-week or 16, 17-week program, but something that is robust and that teachers get compensated, pre-service teachers get compensated for that? The best thing we can do to increase the diversity in the workforce and increase the flow of of students into the work into the education workforce is to ensure that they have those same kinds of professional steps that other professions do. And residency, full scale, um, paid residencies, I think, is one of the best ways that you attack that problem. Chris, I kind of want to get you guys out of here on two issues that I know you're passionate about. The last time I had you on the show, you talked about. Uh, your passion about getting more students learning languages other than English in in schools. And then also we talked a little bit about dual credit. So I'm wondering what is on your agenda? What's on the docket? What's on your wish list for your next term around these two issues? Uh, Yeah. So we've got seven or eight major things identified, but these are two that we'll continue to make progress. in. we've now brought dual language as early as kindergarten to 40 districts in the state. And, And we think under current flow of funds, we can probably go 50% bigger than that in the next couple of years. That won't be fast enough. So we're going to really obsess with the legislature about this. You know why I'm passionate about it. Uh, language is a respect around culture and race. It's about getting globally talented citizens ready to compete in the world. 
But we also know from a learning standpoint that language early and dual language early maps the brain differently. It creates different connections. Countries around the world that focus on language early, even putting less hours into math and science, they blow right past us by middle school in math and science because they built a better foundation uh, using language. So we've got to do this. This is this is great for students and families and community and culture. It is really, really good for economic reasons long term. So I have an argument for every every uh, part of the political spectrum here. They need to double down on dual language. Dual credit is a little bit on the other end of the K-12 uh, educational spectrum. Uh, more of our kids are getting access to college courses and college credit while they're in high school. That is still a very narrow system typically designed around students who are traditionally going to go to post-secondary. So you need to, we need to expand these opportunities for all students to be more intentional by race and income and language, but then also by what does, what, what, what kind of dual credit are we talking about? Is it everyone to a university? Uh, well, the economy says we need 35% of people to have a baccalaureate degree or higher, but everyone needs something more than a high school diploma. So there is this group of students with incredible talent who we need them to get quantitative reasoning and writing, listening, speaking skills but they're not necessarily going to get it in a traditional running start program or a college in the high school or an AP program. They want to build, they want to manufacture, they want to create, they want to start a small business. And we have programs that can help them. And so part of our passion here will be to get more dual credit for all students, their junior, senior year or earlier in things that don't necessarily look traditional. And boy, everyone's got a stake in this. Uh, we've got apprenticeship programs who say, we've got a bunch of baby boomers leaving and we need these kids. And we say, then why do you make them wait till they're 18? Do you know what happens to a young person who drops out at 17 and flounders around for a year? Their probability of ever coming back to your apprenticeship program uh, approaches zero. So grab them as 16 and 17 year olds, juniors and seniors, give them a running start type experience in apprenticeship and in the trades, we'll make sure they get math and science and all those core credits in the, along the way. But let's really open this up to every student to not pretend like it's available, but it's really only available for elite group of kids who primarily think they're headed to a university. That's the future of dual credit. I noticed that you did not once say AP and IB in that answer. And I think it's a good thing uh, for the record, for the record, for the record. I might have said it once, but we definitely have a problem. And boy, if we if you want to put a whole show into the failure of AP in a COVID era, I have personal testimony from a 16-year-old who can help you with this. Oh, we did an episode, actually. I'll send it to you afterwards. Okay, okay. <laughs> Michaela, you want to jump in there? No, I was just saying, me too. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so I have one more listener question, and it's around school librarians. Um is it a priority, and again, this is not your purview because you don't have budgetary like oversight, but is it a priority for OSPI from your leadership to have a teacher librarian in each school? Uh, yes, um, as well as a nurse, as well as uh, other, other uh, student or other employee groups that round out the opportunity for students. So what you can expect from us is to keep pushing on what's called the prototypical school model, right? This is what the court told the legislature they weren't doing well 10 years ago. And, and finally, three years ago, they put enough money in to fill up the old formulas. <laughs> but those formulas are really inadequate in things like librarians, nurses, counselors, mental health specialists, social workers, even administrators. We do not have enough building principals and vice principals right now to do the leadership work uh, that's going to close gaps. So we've already put that proposal forward. Um, the governor's got it in his hands. I know the legislature will say now isn't the time to do this. We don't have the money. It is always the time to reshuffle the deck or to find new money when it comes to closing gaps. 
Um, and that'll be really key. But at the end of the day, like you indicate, unless the legislature changes things, we could we can pile new resources into those and local districts still get to decide whether they put all of that money into just counselors. They could load up uh, school librarians if they want to. They don't have to hire any particular group of people, which is why all of those you know, sort of sub-stakeholders, they got to fight too. They got to be in front of the legislature and their school boards, particularly school boards saying, hey, you got more money for this thing. I want to make sure it all it runs all the way to the end here and we actually get those folks that, that the legislature intended. But currently by law, you could you could throw $10 million at school and say it's for counselors and they could decide instead to hire a whole bunch of nurses. I would, I would um, echo Chris's uh, comments about the, the funding and the need for uh, stabilizing. I also would say that, you know, having worked closely with a teacher librarian uh, for 13 years when I was in the classroom, I know how critical a teacher librarian is to the stability, particularly right now, to bring this back around to the DeVos administration, the assault on truth, all of those things. Um, the, the benefits to a school with a high quality teacher librarian is unparalleled. And so, um, I, I think it's needed now more than ever to have those experts, um, to help students, um, travel through this world of trying to figure out what is truth and what is not and manage that is so important at this moment. So I would hope that in a new administration, we double down on those kinds of uh, those kinds of um, positions in schools because they're essential, they're critical. And in order to get back on track, that's what we need to do. I want to say thank you to both of you for waking up early this morning and letting me pepper you with questions. Uh, we tend to end the show with a segment called Here, Hold This L. Hold This L. And so I'm going to give you each the opportunity. It could be somebody like professionally or personally. Uh, who is somebody that you think needs to take a seat for a minute and, uh, and hold an L for a while? Chris, I'll start with you. The list of candidates is so large on this uh, from the political <laughs> spectrum, right? Like I could go, you know, Mitch McConnell all the way to Tom Cotton and a host of folks who are absolutely wrong about what makes America great. Um, so I could go there. Um, can I just throw it at an ideology? Is that okay, Nate? I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell everyone who thinks that the best system of success is privatizing is taking a public good is taking our shared responsibility, whether it's education or, or any other civil right, when you decide that it's a commodity and the current beneficiary of that should, should come with a check that they can go shop around anywhere, uh, you have fundamentally failed society. So I'm gonna ask the privatizers in the state and in the country to take a step back, uh, reimagine what you believe is right and just, look at the research, and when you do it well and you're an objective thinker, you will double down on public ed with accountability, right? With, with meaningful accountability. But uh, we need to get back to believing that the democracy is a function of us and we, not I and me. And when you do that, man, you double down on kids in ways that are unprecedented and you, you, you reject the concept that markets solve justice because they don't. Here, 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 here. Michaela, how about you? Well, I'm going to go um, education uh, specifically here. And I would say um, it's, a, it's a group. It's not a particular person. But um, psychometricians, um, I would say, need to take a step back. 
Um, I just trying to unpack where we go from here with assessment and I'm not even phrasing things in terms of assessment, but what do we want student learning to be in the future? What do we want to actually, um, how do we want to make it meaningful for educators? We've built an assessment system that is trying to be all things to all people and it ends up being bad at everything. So, um, uh, and behind the scenes, so not the frontline folks, but behind the scenes, there are hundreds of psychometricians (laughs) that are making decisions about what student learning means. And that is going to become paramount for us, I know, in our our state, but I'm hearing it from around the country. So, um, I think, and those that have um, advocated for psychometricians leading and being the voice of what student learning looks like, feels like, is meaningful about all of those things, um, I would say those need to, those folks need to take a seat for a while and listen to teachers. I think we can all tell immediately who the PhD on the call is. So well said, well said, well said. Um, <laughs> if people want to keep abreast of what's happening with OSPI, uh, where should they look? Well, they should go to OSPI's website, um, which I never remember it because it's a ridiculous uh, system. We describe uh, URLs in the country around public ed, but they can also just follow me on Twitter, which which means I want you to follow and I want you to engage. I don't want you to rage. Um, they can uh, obviously really track our work and our recommendations to the governor and the legislature through very public uh, expression of our policies and budget items as well. I want to thank you again, both for coming on the show and making time for this conversation. And I hope people take you up on that offer to follow you and to engage. Uh, It's really important that we, one, that we hold elected officials accountable, but also two, that we engage with them in a thoughtful manner. So thank you. All right, Wakanda forever, y'all. Wash your damn hands, wear a mask, stay home, stay home. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.